Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Recently, we celebrated two monumentous, I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it, monumentous anniversaries. At the end of December, we celebrated Harold and Geneva's 70th wedding anniversary. And just a couple weeks ago, we congratulated as best we could during this time, Chuck and Barb's 64th wedding anniversary. That means that for the majority of our lives, those who are watching this, for the majority of our lives, those two couples have been married. That's an amazing thing. These are monumentous anniversaries in large part due to the high divorce rates we've seen over the past few decades. Last year, the divorce rate stood at 40%. Four out of every 10 marriages ended in divorce. The average length of first marriages is currently eight years. 60% of second marriages end in divorce, and 73% of third marriages end in divorce. We have a marriage problem in our society. What is this problem owing to? Well, there's several factors, but the chief of all factors, I believe, is the cheapening of marriage. The idea that, that marriage is simply a, a social construct, a, a piece of paper that you get from the government. And if you want to trace the moral decay in our country, a major milestone that you must mark is that in 1977, eight states adopted no-fault divorce. By 1983, 48 states had adopted the practice, and this led to split families and latchkey children. Now, I know that some right now are very uncomfortable. Why are we talking about this today? This is not in order to condemn or pour guilt on those who've been divorced. One advantage of working through a book of the Bible together is that it provides very readily for the next topic. What are we going to preach on next week? What are we going to talk about next week? Well, what's next in the book? That's what we're going to talk about. It also provides the opportunity then to discuss hard topics without someone thinking they're being singled out, like, like something is going on and that's why we're preaching on this. Why are we discussing this today? Well, for two reasons. Number one, because it's the next topic in Mark. The next section in, as we walk through Mark is this section, so that's why we're covering it. Number two, though, it's because it is still a very important issue, an important topic for all to understand today. We live in a society that thinks nothing of marriage and divorce. When you fall in love with someone, you, you might get married to them. And when you fall out of love with them, well, then you just stop being married to them. You get divorced. You end it. But as people of the book, as people of the Bible, we must always ask the question, what does God think? Does God allow this? Does God allow divorce? 
In God's providence, he provides for us the answer in this next text in Mark, here in Mark chapter 10, as the Pharisees ask that very question. So let's read Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and we'll work through verse number 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. As we work through this text, we'll cover the issues by asking and and answering four questions as we work through this. What does the Bible say? What is God's plan? Does God really mean this? And where do we go from here? Now, through these questions, we will see that God's plan from creation was life long, flourishing marriages. And as a result, we will call to each other to commit to be content with where God has you. Now, this text is going to take us a couple of weeks to get through because this is a dense and important topic. Now, before we ask these questions and answer them, we need to lay some groundwork. Note verses 1 and 2. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So Jesus and his disciples continue their trek to Jerusalem and and they cross and towards the cross and they traveled south from Galilee to Judea and came to the west side of the Jordan River. And there they were met again by the men who were seeking to kill Jesus, the Pharisees. We'll note that they asked Jesus a question in an attempt to test him. That word test is the idea of tempting or or trying or trying to ensnare Jesus. Their question was straightforward. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it allowed for a man to do this? Does God allow divorce? The question of divorce was at the forefront of the people's minds in that day for a couple of reasons. Recently, the regent of the area, Herod Antipas, divorced his wife and had his sister-in-law, Herodias, divorce her husband in order that they might marry each other. 
And you recall we discussed this just a few chapters ago because this was the reason for John the Baptist's execution, his death. He, he had decried this action, this immoral act, and so they killed him. Closely on the heels of this, Herod's sister, Salome, also divorced her husband, and it, and it caused a great scandal. Further, the divorce rate in the Roman world was also quite high. However, Josephus, the historian, informs us that divorce, even in the Jewish world, was also very common and, and considered something, not, not considered something at which to be surprised. This led, or, or perhaps followed from, a major debate between the religious leaders of the day regarding the question, does God allow divorce? Now, one side, represented by the rabbinical school led by a man named Shammai, uh, held to a very conservative position. They believed that divorce was not allowed, but only in the case of infidelity. On the other side of the issue was, a, was represented by a, rab, a rabbinical school led by a rabbi named Hillel, and they held to a very liberal view on divorce. They believed that God allowed divorce, uh, a man to divorce his wife for just about any reason, um, even such trivial matters as, as burning his dinner or allowing someone to see her ankles or letting her hair down or making a negative comment about her mother-in-law. Or, if all else failed, because he found someone else that he preferred to her, they could then be divorced. But lest we think that the Pharisees were actually interested in Jesus' answer or, or perhaps settling this debate, we need to remember four important things. First, Mark states very clearly here that they asked this question in order to test Jesus. They weren't interested in his answer as far as settling the debate. They wanted to catch him. Second, they were already well aware of his position. He had stated it publicly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Third, any answer he gave would make someone mad. And their hope was that would be the case and that person would kill him. And then we remember, fourth, they waited to ask this of Jesus until Jesus was in Herod Antipas's territory. They strategically waited to ask him to where he was geographically because, remember, Herod had John the Baptist killed for questioning Dvoris. Their hope was perhaps Herod Antipas might then arrest and execute Jesus. So we can rightly conclude that the Pharisees were not seeking the truth. Instead, they were seeking to test Jesus, hoping to discredit him in the eyes of the people, and, and perhaps even getting Herod Antipas to arrest and execute him. Now, as we've laid this groundwork, we've discovered two important things I hope you caught. Okay? The first one is that the religious and political leaders of the day, of Jesus' day, they did not value marriage. They did not question if God allowed divorce. They simply debated about when God allowed it. Second, though, their, second, culture, their culture did not value marriage. One could end a marriage for any reason, without any problems. And this is lockstep with where we stand in our own culture today. 
It's not uncommon or even seen as unseemly for anyone to get a divorce in our culture today. It's commonplace. It's given no second thoughts. However, as people of the book, the church, we must not base our thinking on the shifting sands of cultural, societal norms. Instead, we must anchor ourselves to the bedrock of God's word the Bible. And when we begin to work through Scripture, we discover that the Bible is not unclear about what God thinks about divorce. So we must ask, what does the Bible say? That's the first question we want to cover, ask and answer. What does the Bible say? Note Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. He immediately took them to the word of God. Note verse number three. He answered them, what did Moses command you? What was Jesus asking them? He was asking them, what does the Bible say? This is the first and most important question we must ask of any topic. What does the Bible say? The Pharisees' answer is interesting. Look at verse number four. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Notice the word allowed there. It it was permission, not a command. Jesus had asked what God commanded, but the Pharisees answered instead what Moses allowed. They did not move to what God commands. They instead quoted what God permits. What I would like to do now is is to take some time to actually answer the question Jesus asked. What does the Bible say? And so we'll work through this topic. We'll work through several passages to trace God's thinking on the matter. Now, this is not going to be an exhaustive study. The Bible has a lot to say on the matter. Instead, we will try to hit the key texts, the key passages. So let's begin with the text the Pharisees referred to in their answer to Jesus. You can keep your finger there in Mark 10 and turn back to Deuteronomy 24, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Moses writes there in Deuteronomy, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This was an interesting text that the Pharisees chose to refer to as it's not a text which answers what God allows. You can even note that in the way the Pharisees 
answer the question. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So, so to interpret this passage as permission for divorce is a matter of inference from the fact that this text pictures that the divorce has already taken place and Moses does, does not express disapproval. This part of the law was not to allow for divorce. This part of the law was put into place to protect the wife in the case that her husband divorced her. Prior to this, all a man had to do was to tell his wife he was divorcing her, and it was done. He just walked in and said, I'm divorcing you, and that was it. Now, he had to go through some legal actions, and this law was placed to serve against abusing women. This was not a command for divorce, encouraging divorce, or even excusing divorce. It was simply a protection for the wife in the case of sin. So this passage does not give the green light for divorce. One commentator notes, in these verses, divorce is not established as a right. All that is done is that in the case of a divorce, a reunion with the divorced wife is forbidden if in the meantime she had married another man. Another commentator further states, There is nothing, therefore, in this passage itself that would warrant the conclusion that divorce is here given divine approval and is morally legitimate under the conditions specified. Jesus seems in our text in Mark to invite the Pharisees to correct him by acknowledging that Moses never actually commanded the divorce, but merely presupposed its existence. The crucial words in this text that had caused a lot of debate and led to the variety of opinions are are the words there, he found something indecent in her. What does that, that indecency include? And as we mentioned in the introduction, this this led to a debate about what it meant. The school of Shammai, the stricter of the schools, understood these words to mean something morally indecent. The school of Hillel interpreted the words much more freely. Just about anything a wife uh, did that a husband didn't find to his liking was indecent and suitable grounds for divorce. We conclude then from this text that uh, that, that in the case something indecent happened, Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce to be issued. But it's unclear what this indecency is. So we need more. For this, we move to some New Testament passages. The first of which is the text we mentioned earlier. You can turn now over to Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. These are Christ's statements in the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, Christ says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, over a series of verses, Christ repeats the phrase, it has been said or it has been written, but I say unto you. And and through these phrases, Christ demonstrates to the people that, that simple obedience to the letter of the law is not what God is interested in. It misses the point of the law itself. 
And in the middle of this, Jesus touches the debate about divorce. And Jesus quotes the previous text we looked at and, and provides some clarity. Apparently, indecency refers to fornication. Now, here, the ESV translates the word as sexual immorality. And, and that's not an incorrect translation. However, it, it's a very narrow translation of the word. And you see, this word also covers abuse. It covers pornography as forms of adultery. The word here is actually the word pornea, from which we get our English word porn. And so it's referring to fornication or, or, or infidelity in the marriage. In the parallel text uh, to our text in Mark, Jesus states this again, Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that same word, pornea, and marries another commits adultery. So in this text, we discover that if a divorce takes place because of infidelity in the marriage, it is allowed by God. But if there is no infidelity, there can be no real divorce. And if there has been no real divorce, there can be no remarriage. And additional sexual unions are adulterous. However, we need to note two people who are walking close to God and in a passionate relationship with him will never divorce one another. From this text, we learn that divorce is always the result of sin. A couple seeking the dissolution of their marriage are only seeking it because of unrepentant sin. The guilty party of the infidelity ought to repentantly seek forgiveness of the offended party. And the offended spouse should seek to demonstrate Christ's likeness in forgiveness and in restoration. Yet, when the extent of the infidelity is too great and the offending party is unrepentant, a clause for divorce does appear. This leads us then to another very important text on this topic in the New Testament. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll look at verses 10 through 17. Here Paul writes, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. 
As the early church began to grow and began to work out the teachings of Christ in their lives, several difficult issues arose. One of these issues was the question and application of the teachings that we have looked at regarding divorce and remarriage. As God saved individuals, their lives were changed. And many times, individuals would come to salvation in Christ, but their spouse would not. In the first century, the world viewed Christianity with derision. And as a result, marital problems many times ensued between the unbelieving spouse and the believing spouse. There were times when the unbelieving spouse would request a divorce from the believing spouse. Holding fast to the teachings of Christ that divorce was only allowed in the case of infidelity, this presented a unique problem for the believing spouse. For this reason, Paul addressed this issue in his first epistle to Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 7 that we looked at, 10 to 17, Paul sought to give instruction to the church regarding the marital union between a believer and an unbeliever. Paul begins this discussion by addressing the marriage bond between two believing spouses, between two believers. He states very clearly at the outset that two believers should never dissolve the marriage bond. The wife is not to desert her husband. She's to remain faithful to him until death. Also, the husband is never to divorce his wife. Then we get to verses, uh, he says this in verses 10 to, and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul also addresses the issue of remarrying to, should two believers divorce one another. And Paul states very clearly that they're to remain unmarried. The insinuation is very clearly pointing back to the teachings of Christ that to marry again is to commit adultery. However, Paul also brings in a teaching of grace. You see, they're also to remain unmarried because the goal is for the divorced parties to seek reconciliation with one another. God's desire is for the two offending parties to demonstrate repentance, grace, and forgiveness through the mending of the broken relationship. Having addressed the marriage relationship between believers, Paul moves to the controversy surrounding marriages between believers and unbelievers. No doubt, Paul faced many such situations as he planted churches all across the Roman Empire. Paul had spent significant time sharing the gospel in Corinth and and establishing the church in that city. And as people came to Christ, one can imagine that the situation where only one individual came to Christ uh, happened often. And Paul addresses two scenarios that Christians of all ages have faced. First, he addresses the situation in which the wife has come to Christ for salvation, but her husband remains unsaved. Yet her husband is more than happy to continue in the marriage relationship and and to continue in that union. In this situation, the wife is to remain with her husband. 
Verse 14 states that the believing wife sanctifies the unbelieving husband. In other words, she becomes a daily testimony to him of God's saving grace. And the hope is for the wife that that through this testimony, her husband would also come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This also uh, plays a preserving role in the lives of their children. She's able to maintain a Christian influence on them. Now, what was a believer to do when their salvation, their commitment to Christ, causes a rift in their marriage with this unbelieving spouse? And what if the rift became so severe that the unbelieving spouse threatened to leave the relationship? What is that believer supposed to do in that situation? Well, Paul's answer is is very succinct. Should the believing spouse desire to leave the should the unbelieving spouse, excuse me, desire to leave the relationship? The believer is under no obligation to hold the believer hostage in the relationship. While God hates divorce, Paul, under the influence uh, and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, introduces a new situation where God does not hold the individual accountable for divorce. The case of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Paul is saying that Christians should not insist on the spouse's staying if he or she is determined to go. So with this text in mind, we must make two more conclusions. First, very clearly in the passages we've examined, should the divorce occur when there's been no infidelity, where there's been no desertion on the part of an unbelieving spouse, any remarriage or or that divorce itself is adultery. The second conclusion is found in the divine clause for divorce. In the case of fornication, in the case of this infidelity, or in the case of desertion, can that innocent party remarry? Or do are, are they projected then to eternal singlehood? Well, Paul says if they are no that they are no longer bound to the marriage. Well, if they are no longer bound to the marriage, then it would follow that they are free to remarry. However, while the offended party is innocent of the divorce in these cases, these incidents do not, they do not present a picture of God's intent for marriage. They stand as extreme circumstances, extreme pictures of the hardness of men's heart. Turn back. I hope you kept your finger there. Turn back to Mark chapter 10 and look at verse 5. Note Jesus' answer. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. What does Jesus mean by that? Hardness of heart. He means because of your stubborn insensitivity to God. This word is only used a handful of times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In in Deuteronomy 10.16, Proverbs 17.20, Jeremiah 4.4, and Ezekiel 3.7. And each time it refers to the people of God's stubborn refusal to obey the clear commands of God. What Jesus is saying 
is that divorce occurs when people rebel against the will of God in their behavior. And it was for such situations that Moses legislated when he mentioned certificates of divorce. The law states clearly in several other places God's thoughts on divorce. We think of, of Exodus 20.14 and Leviticus 20.10 that adultery was forbidden and punishable by death. We think of Leviticus 19.20 where premarital sex was also punishable by death. We think of Exodus 20.17 where coveting another person's spouse was forbidden. One commentator said clearly to focus on what God allows but disapproves of due to the hardness of human heart rather than on what he commands and wills reveals a misguided focus. So, why do we have that misguided focus? Why, why do we focus on this? Why even today do we ignore the clear teachings of God and look for loopholes so that we might follow the modern sexual ethic, this free sex? Well, the next text we must look at is not one you might think of in this situation, but it's vital for our understanding of divorce. Take your Bibles and turn all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, 16 to 19. In creation, God created everything good. But in the fall, the created order was turned on its head. In creation, God was over the man who had a th- held, uh, God was over the man who led the woman as they held dominion and cared for and held authority over creation, namely the plants and the animals. But in the fall, that was completely thrown on its head. The serpent, an animal, came to the woman who came to the man who overthrew God. It turned it on its head. This turning of the creation order on its head led to some natural, horrific results. And we find them in the text we'll look at now. Genesis 3, 16 to 19. To the woman, he, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We discover in this text that the unavoidable conflict in marriage that may lead to divorce is hostility that stems from the fall and the resulting curse on Adam, Eve, and their descendants. The man is cursed in relation to his work, and the woman is cursed in connection with bearing children and submitting to her husband. 
Note verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The Hebrew word there translated desire. It's only used one other time in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, New Test- of the Old Testament. In Genesis 4, 7. There, God warned Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The same language is used in the curse on on Eve and all women here. She will desire to control her husband, and he will have to master her. So this word desire should be understood as the wife's desire to overcome or, or gain the upper hand over her husband. At creation, the husband and wife complemented each other perfectly. They lived together in harmony as as co-regents overseeing God's creation. But after the fall, that perfect harmony was shattered for them and for every married couple that came after them. Because of the fall, wives seek to be independent of their husband's authority, to dominate the relationship and impose their will on the husbands. On the other hand, though, because of the fall, husbands seek to suppress their wives and suppress their revolt against authority, often in in harsh and, and arrogant and ungracious and autocratic sinful ways. And this regular conflict between two sinners can produce animosity that leads to divorce. You see, this is all a result of the curse. But there's hope. You see, just a couple verses prior to the text that we read, in verse 15, we see that a seed would come, a son would come, who would write that curse What Adam and Eve did not realize at the time was that their very marriage pictured that hope. That brings us to the final passage for this morning, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Ephesians 5, 22, excuse me, through 33. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." 
You see, why does marriage exist in the first place? Why did God at creation instill marriage between Adam and Eve? Well, this text gives us the glorious message that before time began, God determined that at creation, he would institute this thing called marriage to picture God's relationship with his redeemed people. Your marriage, my marriage, is a picture of salvation. The relationship between the husband and wife is a picture to the world of the relationship between God and his people. This means then that marriage is not simply a piece of paper or an invention of government. Marriage is the God-ordained way of picturing the salvation of his people. And when we mar that picture, we are disrespecting salvation. When we cheapen that picture, we are, dis- we are cheapening salvation. And so, husbands are told to love their wives the way Christ loves the church. What an incredible calling. Husbands, you're to love your wife the way Christ loves her and loves you. Wives, you are to submit to your husband as the church submits to its head, Christ. And when this complementary relationship is entered, it works into a glorious picture of the salvation of God's chosen people. You see, this also provides hope. For the very nature and purpose of the cross of Christ is forgiveness. Jesus suffered and died to destroy the curse. Jesus suffered and died to take our sin on himself. And so it means that there is forgiveness at the cross. Now, we obviously are not going to make it through to the other three questions this morning. We'll cover those next week. But I want to end this text with two encouragements. The first is this. You can find forgiveness at the cross. You see, this message is not intended to pour guilt on the repentant, but to encourage all to find forgiveness at the cross. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might say, Pastor Dave, I've been divorced. Maybe I've even been divorced multiple times. And this topic hurts. And I understand that. But this topic ought to remind you that there is forgiveness with Christ of the glorious message of salvation that God is forgiving to all who call on him in repentance. So find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. But then number two, be committed and faithful where you are. If you are married, whether it is your first marriage or second marriage or any number after that, be faithful where you are. Do your best to make your marriage a picture of God's relationship with his people. Husbands, love and honor your wives. Love them like Christ loves us. Wives, follow your husbands as the church follows Christ picture salvation in your marriage. If you're not married, be faithful where you are. Don't idolize marriage. See, 
What we've seen is that marriage is only a temporary picture of something that you have already entered into. Something that's already true in you. You've got the better thing, not the, not the copy of it. We are married to Christ. You already have the better thing, salvation, that that lesser thing, marriage, is picturing. And when we get to heaven, there will be no marriage because there's no longer a need for that picture. So don't idolize marriage. And don't idolize romance. Stay pure. Hold strongly and steadfastly to the commands of Scripture that state sex is only for one man and one woman in the confines of marriage, period. Instead, pursue a passionate relationship with Christ and let Him lead you. For all, commit to and be content with where God has you. This has been a hard text, but it's an important text for our day and age. Follow Christ in your marriage. Make him the center and pinnacle. Don't ever let the word divorce even be mentioned. If it's not an option, it can't be entered into. If it's not an option, it's not an option. But please know, please know, that I am available to serve you in this way. If you are struggling in your marriage, I'm here to help you. If you have questions about what's been said today, I'm available. Our desire is for our church to be filled with strong, healthy, God-honoring, salvation-picturing marriages. God bless us as we follow him. Father, we thank you that we are married to you through Christ that because of the sacrifice of Christ, we have eternal security and a relationship for all eternity. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the marriages in our church, that we would exemplify salvation to the people around us through the way that we interact and treat and, and engage with our spouse. Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified. I pray that we would not over-idolize marriage, that we would not see it as this thing that everybody needs to attain to, and if they don't, but somehow they're a second-level citizen, but recognize that it is simply a picture of something so much better, of the salvation found in you. So, Lord, help us to, to seek that relationship above all things, that you might receive all the praise and the honor and the glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.